Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. On June 24th, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court released Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. In this historic decision, the court overruled 49 years of precedent and ruled there is no constitutional right to abortion, thus returning the issue to the states. Many of us know what the court ruled in Dobbs, but not why it did so. Joining us today to talk about the whys and making a return appearance to Bioethics on Air is Eric Niffen, a religious liberty attorney with the firm Lewis Roca, located in Colorado Springs. Eric will discuss why the majority justices deemed Roe egregiously wrong and explain stare decisis and the role it played or didn't play in the Dobbs case. He'll also touch upon the legal standard the court can apply to state abortion laws moving forward, as well as religious liberty challenges that may arise in the post-Dobbs world. Before we begin, please note that Eric's comments in this interview are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice. The information is not intended to create, and listening to this interview does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. With that disclaimer in mind, Eric Niffen, welcome back to Bioethics on Air. Thanks, Joe. Really good to be with you. Great to have you back. So um, you're not a new guest on our podcast. Uh, for those who may be interested, uh, episode 37, you spoke about the Bostock Supreme Court decision. So I guess maybe you're kind of our Supreme Court uh, commentator here for for, the, for bioethics on air. But uh, since it's been uh, more than two years since we last talked, can you tell uh, listeners a bit about yourself and the work you do with Louis Roca? Sure. Um, uh my work is, uh, I'm within a big old law firm, but I have a really fun specialty in helping religious organizations navigate the world. Uh, I think that the niche that I enjoy the most is helping religious organizations uh, understand the religious liberty rights and to develop policies and procedures and other sorts of strategies to help them uh, continue to be able to operate in this ever-changing world uh, without uh, without uh, too much fear or risk. So that's that's what I really enjoy. Um, it changes every day, which is fun, but that uh, thread is really what continues through it. Well, what does a typical day look like for you? I, I, that seems to be a staple question on the show now. So what, what, what does it look like? Oh, well, it changes a lot. It's reviewing policies, making phone calls, talking to newer prospective clients. Um, one thing that I used to think of myself as an introvert, but the thing that gives me the most energy that I enjoy the most is spending time with clients, whether that's uh, in person or, or on phone. But uh, just rolling up my sleeves and sitting down and sort of saying, okay, what's going on? What are you afraid of? Or what just happened? And how are we going to fix it? And that's, you know, my job is to be a supporting role for people who are out there doing ministry and help take big, scary, hairy things off their plate so they can get back to doing what God's called them to do. So that's, it, look, it looks different every day, but that's what I do. Yeah. Kind of sounds similar to the NCBC in some ways, although we're not mm -hmm. dealing with legal issues, we're dealing with other issues, but uh, yeah, very good. All right. So today we're going to be talking about the majority opinion in the Dobbs uh, versus Jackson women's health case. But before actually delving into it, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the, the author 
uh, Justice Samuel mm-hmm. Alito. So, Eric, what can you tell us about Alito's judicial, judicial philosophy and, and really probably that of the majority justices as a whole? And how is this judicial philosophy evident in the Dobbs decision? Um, I, I think one thing that's really important to this decision is uh, Justice Alito's commitment to originalism. Uh, so originalism, this is Alito's own definition. It's the idea that the Constitution has a fixed meaning. It doesn't change. It means what people would have understood it to mean at the time it was written. So that's probably the, the first and most important uh, departure point between the majority and the dissent is that uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the, the meaning of a particular constitutional provision, in this case, we're focusing on the 14th Amendment, uh, the meaning doesn't change across time. And so the way I like to think of it, you go back to America's founding. So the constitution was um, a compact that states put together and says, we will create a federal government, but we're gonna do so under specific terms. It's gonna have the right to do specific things. And so it's kind of like a contract. And so if you think of it as a contract, then you ought to be able to go back and ask the original people who signed it, what words they use and what did they think they were doing by entering into this contract? And that's really the perspective of Alito and originalism that says, um, you know, we talked about this in the Bostock decision, but it, it shouldn't be a surprise. So you shouldn't have to have like a time machine where someone goes back in time and rushes into the, to, you know, to a state that's about to ratify the fourth amendment and says, hold on, hold on. Did you know that if you sign this document, it's gonna do this? And everyone says, what are you talking about? That's crazy. That you ought to be able to get sort of a, a, a bored nod from that group. And they say, yeah, we know because we're writing down these words. And so it's a contract, words have meanings. And so therefore paying attention to those words, what those words meant, and all that is evidence to what people thought they were doing when they voted for this constitutional amendment, that that's really the heart of the important question. Uh, and so I think that is a really important issue. And then more broadly, um, Justice Alito has a very plain, and it should be non-controversial, but a pretty sort of simple, straightforward way that he's approaching this question. Uh, and that's done out of conviction. And I think it's also done because he knows what a controversial issue this is. And so I really see in this opinion that he went out of his way to show his work. He's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Step one is this. And if the answer is yes, then you go to step two and then you go from here to there. And so there's a roadmap. And the roadmap is pretty easy to follow. And you know, even if you're not a lawyer, you can sort of say, okay, well, that seems like a reasonable question to ask. And yep, that seems like how you would answer that question. And then you proceed to the next one. And so I think that, uh, that commitment and that sort of philosophy is evident in the way that he uh, did, you know, explains to the American people what he's doing and why he's doing it. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned the second part of that because we were talking off air before we started recording. And I told you that I actually sat down a number of weeks ago and I said, you know what, I should really read this opinion. And I was shocked at how clear it was, how easy to read it was. And, and I would encourage people to actually pick up uh, Alito's opinion and read it. Now it's 79 pages long. Right. So, but don't let that get, you know, don't, don't let that scare you. Um, I actually, I, I told Eric too, um, that I, I actually have a, a highlighted, um, 
version of the opinion that I'm happy to, you know, if people wanted to email, I'd be happy to, uh, happy to send it to you that it, it, just read the highlighted sections, it cuts it down to about 30 pages and it's, it, it gives the entire argument and it's, it's unbelievably clear. Uh, it's, it's, it's so easy to read. And the arguments that he makes, as you said, he kind of sets things up, knocks them down, sets them up, knocks them down. And it's just, it was so, it was just so refreshing, um, uh, to read. I'd like to ask you, Eric, what did you think of the tone of Justice Alito's opinion? So I saw a lot of people at the time the draft opinion came out and then also the, the, the court's actual opinion, which was, uh, the heart of it was was not changed very much, say that they thought Justice Alito was snarky. Um, I didn't see that. Uh, I, I think he, he has some harsh things to say, but I don't think he meant them in a snarky way. He's just like, look, we have to tell the truth about the fact that this thing was bunk all along. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think alongside that, I think there is some pent up frustration, pent up energy that here's a justice that's been on the Supreme Court for a long time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. has had uh, to be a part of courts where he was not in the majority on issues like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I see a difference between Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, who's been on the Supreme Court in a in minority position on these sorts of issues for a long time. And then newer justices, I, I, Justice Barrett, and then also Justice Kavanaugh, where they have not lived in this world. Right. Um, they haven't I think been of, through the wars. Yeah. So I think of, uh, you know, like uh, um, I'm a Cubs fan and the the Cubs players that were on the 2016 World Series team, you know, there's like rookies or second year players and um, they don't appreciate how special it is to go to the World Series and win. And then those same players years later say, I didn't realize at the time how rare and special that is. That's the difference between Justice Alito and some of the newer justices. And then I think there's some of this energy that Justice Alito has like, look, I finally get to sort of lay this out for the court in a way that he, his deepest convictions are that this is correct. This is the way it ought to be. But he's had to wait a long time to be able to have that voice because of the, 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 the constitution of the court, the makeup. And so I think there's some of that energy is there, but I, I think the tone of it, um, you know, I really appreciate Justice Alito and a lot of the justices in the Supreme Court, uh, I think, put a lot of thought and care into making their decisions um, understandable and reasonable and readable to Americans who are not lawyers. So yeah. I'm glad to hear that you picked it up and found that to be true as well. Yeah. I got the feeling that Justice Alito enjoyed it, enjoyed writing that opinion. There is, uh, you know, there are certainly boring Supreme Court opinions, <laughs> but um, I think justices. It is fun to read when there's sort of a bounce in their step that they 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 put a little wink and nod in there and some judges go too far in making things kind of jokey, but um, this is not a lighthearted opinion, um, but the, it, it's well written. It's not just well reasoned. Right. It, it right. is also well written. That's yeah, very well written. And and just one last thing, seeing as you mentioned the Cubs in 2016, I, I can mention the Red Sox in 2004. Same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's set the context for our discussion here. So the Dobbs decision overruled uh, two prior U.S. Supreme Court decisions. The first was Roe v. Wade from 1973, and the second was Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey, uh, 1992. And we'll just refer to the to the to the second one as Casey. So Eric, really quickly, 
just to get the context again, what was the essential ruling of Roe? So it's a surprisingly um, difficult question to answer. It's something that sort <laughs> of leads to the Dobbs decision, right. but it's not exactly clear. Like, and th there's sort of stuff in the opinion that sort of says, well, this right comes from here, it comes from there. And so it's kind of muddled, but the bottom line is there's an assertion that there is a constitutional right to an abortion. And then the Supreme Court uh, in support of that created uh, a, a three trimester framework, which had mm -hmm. no basis in the constitution, but it's right. just sort of, they said a practical way to sort of try to work this out. So the first trimester, no restrictions on abortion. Um, the second trimester, states had a compelling interest in protecting maternal health and prenatal health. So restrictions on abortion were okay, so long as they were narrowly tailored, whatever that means. And then the third trimester, which the Roe court said roughly coincided with viability, states right. could prohibit abortion except where necessary to protect the mother's life or health. And so there's some judgment calls in there, but uh, that's the framework that, that Roe worked out. All right, and and Dobbs is going to address those issues that that, mm -hmm. that you brought up here. So we'll we'll do that then. How about Casey? So fast forward almost twenty years to nineteen ninety two, and pro lifers were were hopeful that Casey would overturn Roe, but it didn't. And yeah. Question is why didn't it? What ha what happened? Um, there there's a lot of articles that have been sort of written about this, and it's it's hard to say exactly. I think both with Roe. And with uh, Casey, there's a sense that like, well, what was going on inside the court and was there bargaining, memos written back and forth. Uh, and that I think part of that, especially with, with Casey, uh, pro-lifers thought they were gonna win in Casey. Mm -hmm. They thought like, now we finally, and, and that was only 20 years right. after, after Roe. And so when this came around, again, even as, as strong as the court's composition seemed to be, as well as oral arguments went to be, a lot of people were like, look, it looked good before in Casey. This is kind of a Charlie Brown and Lucy holding the football sort of a moment. <laughs> it looked like the football was going to be there last time. So heck, what do I know? Right. Um, but uh, for, for whatever reason, some Republican justices that were moderates in the middle there, uh, Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and then Justice Kennedy sort of said, look, we're going to have some sort of a middle route which they, they construed it and, and said, we're going to up, uphold the essential holding of Roe while um, not paying too much attention to, to, the, to the reasoning, the foundations of Roe itself. Got rid of the three trimester framework that we mentioned, mm -hmm. did not address the issue as to whether Roe was rightly decided. They said, look, it's, it, it's, it's happened. And uh, because of stare decisis reasons, it's important that it remain in place. I gave it a new grounding, a new foundation. Um, Roe was actually more about a doctor's right to perform an abortion, whereas Casey is about a woman's right to bodily autonomy and to have an abortion. Uh, and also in getting rid of the three trimester framework, uh, the, the central part of the right that's left is that there's a, um, a right to have an abortion and uh, there, there cannot be an undue burden is the, yeah. is the phrase that comes out of it. There's, it. There may not be an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion. So right. it's, it's, a, it's another subjective uh, phrase that you find in a lot of uh, 
uh, other areas of law too, that it really sort of depends on the judge and what the judge thinks. And that, that gets into some of what Justice Alito talks about, the unworkability of it. Um, yeah. yeah, we're going to talk about the undue burden standard when we get yeah. into the Dobbs as well too. But just, just you know, one sort of thing that, that uh, famously comes out of Casey and just how sort of how floofy this, this uh, opinion was is this phrase. Is that phrase, a legal term, floofy? It is. It is. Oh, okay. I haven't heard uh, that one before. <laughs> Justice Scalito called this, uh, excuse me, Justice uh, Scalia called this the sweet mystery of life passage. And this was uh, written by Justice Kennedy in the opinion. So something that Justice Kennedy seemed to take seriously and said with a straight face, but was made fun of by Justice Scalia. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. This completely vacuous phrase, that is more of a legal term than flu. <laughs> uh, but that really, uh, Justice Kennedy also wrote the court's opinions in, in Lawrence v. Texas, which uh, struck down sodomy laws, and then also Obergefell, establishing a, or announcing a right to constitution, uh, constitutional right to same-sex marriage. Uh, the same sort of really dissatisfying, undisciplined, broad, sort of flourishing language about liberty uh, you see in all these opinions. And that's part of what's really frustrating. And I think that's also behind the, the strongly analytical approach that Alito says. It's like, look, highfalutin language is not the way this is done. It, it has to go through steps. It has to go through uh, you know, a system, a series of tests. And that's what we're going to do. But um, that's what we have in Roe Ro and Casey, uh, is two very different decisions. And where they overlap is, you know, whatever the difference is, is there's a supreme a constitutional right to abortion. To abortion, yeah. All right, so fast forward now to, the, um, to today and the Dobbs decision. Um, so Dobbs is the case that overturned Roe and Casey. But let's kind of back up a second here. Uh, quickly, what was, or maybe not so quickly, what was the Dobbs case about and why did the court use it to overturn Roe and Casey? Um, so the issue in Dobbs, it's right. So when a court comes before the Constitution, uh, a case comes before the Constitution, uh, before the Supreme Court, let me say that again. When a case comes before the Supreme Court, uh, you can't just come before the Supreme Court and say, we want you to revisit the whole abortion thing. It has to come up within a specific context. Mm -hmm. And here... Um, everyone focuses on was Roe versus Wade uh, and was uh, Planned, Planned Parenthood versus Casey were they overturned. But the precise legal question the court was asking was about a Mississippi law. And this law was passed in 2018. And the law, you know, in short says, except in the case of a medical emergency or a fetal anatomy, uh, anomaly, no person shall perform an abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So... This was passed in 2018. Everyone who passed the law in Mississippi understood what they were doing, that this was a direct challenge um, to the to Supreme Court decisions on abortion. And so as such, they knew that a district court judge is going to say, this is unconstitutional because I don't have the right to revisit a Supreme mm -hmm. Court precedent. Same thing at the appellate court. They're going to say, this is has to be struck down. Understood, understood. So this law was passed in order to bring to the Supreme Court a challenge to saying, we want to revisit Roe and Casey. That's right. the whole point of this law. And everyone yeah. understood that. And so that's what happened. And so this case came before the Supreme Court and Justice Alito on the first page of the court's opinion says, look, both sides agree 
that this case centrally implicates this Supreme Court's precedence on abortion. And so that's what's going to be at issue. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I was wondering, Eric, can you tell us why there were two separate decisions in the Dobb case? It was a 6-3 decision and a 5-4 decision. Could you explain um, to our audience what uh, what those two, quote unquote, two decisions um, meant? So it's, it's um, sometimes in Supreme Court decisions, uh, it's often really easy to say what the case outcome is and what the sort of the votes were. But in some decisions, it gets really, really complicated. This one's not too complicated, but there is a sense in which it's uh, 6-3 and which it's 5-4. And so uh, the 6-3 part of it was that there were six justices that agreed that the Mississippi law should be upheld. The 15-week ban law. The 15-week ban law, right. Yep. But there were only five votes for the central um, takeaway from Dobbs, which is not really about the Mississippi law, but about the Supreme Court's uh, abortion jurisprudence for 50 years. And so the difference between those is Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote separately to say that the majority was wrong to go all the way to revisiting Roe versus Casey. And so his- Roe v. His, Wade. Roe uh, v. Wade. Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. So his beef was he was saying, look, you don't need to go that far in order to uphold the Mississippi law, and therefore you shouldn't. Right. And so that's the separate argument he was making. And so he doesn't defend Roe and Casey. He just simply said, you didn't need to go there, and therefore you shouldn't have. Right. So just to be clear, it was it was six three to uphold the Mississippi fifteen week ban, mm -hmm. but on the the question of overturning Roe and Casey, it was five four, and Justice Roberts was the he was the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just have to ask you, where were you when you heard about the Dobbs decision? Not the leak, but the actual Dobbs decision. Do you remember? Oh boy, that's a good question. I actually don't remember. <laughs> Uh, there are other important Supreme Court cases that uh, I, I remember where I was. Um, I think I was, I, I think I was just at work, um, uh, and it actually it took me a, a few days before I was able to sit down and read it. As you said, it is it is rather lengthy. Yeah. Um, this was such a strange one because there was the leaked opinion. Right. Um, I was very confident that the justices in the majority back in February or so when the the uh, leaked opinion was written, uh, I, I thought that the leak would have the effect of cementing them. And that there's no way that even if they perhaps had kind of wanted to say something else, that they really had to stick to their guns because otherwise it would seem like they were yielding to public pressure. So I was not on the edge of my seat waiting for the decision to come down because I just couldn't see how it could be otherwise. All right, so let's let's delve into the decision itself. So on page mm -hmm. six of his majority opinion, Justice Alito stated this, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. And he goes on to say, and far from bringing about a national settlement on the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepen division, unquote. Eric, how was Roe egregiously wrong. I think the most interesting thing to say there, Joe, is that that is actually not a controversial statement. 
Okay. Um, Justice Ginsburg, uh, who was a really strong advocate for women's rights, and she saw as part of that uh, the right to abortion, uh, saw Roe as an embarrassment of a judicial opinion. She liked the outcome, but she mm -hmm. didn't like the opinion at all. Right. Uh, Professor Larry Tribe uh, of Harvard Law School, really famous um, liberal constitutional scholar, he said, while he would vote for a statute very much like Roe if he was in the legislature, Roe was, quote, not constitutional law and gave, quote, almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Mm -hmm. And so when Alito says that, he has a lot of people backing up, but he quoted that, that um, right. Lawrence Tribe quote. But yeah. um, this is something that has been something that has made abortion advocates uncomfortable and uneasy for a long time is that they knew that this was not a well-reasoned decision. Why is it not well-reasoned? What, what's missing about, um, why is it not well-reasoned? Well, I think to answer that, you have to get to the structure that Alito lays out. And he sort of says, look, there's a way you have to do this. Mm -hmm. And um, the answer is, is mostly have to do with history. And so to say, like, look, if you're going to say that there's a constitutional right, the first, the next logical question is, well, where is it? Can you point it to me? Right. And if you can't, and you can't with abortion, then the next question at issue is whether the right is, quote, deeply rooted in our history, history and tradition, and whether it is, quote, essential to our nation's scheme of ordered liberty. And so that is to say, um, there's some questions, uh, you see this as a lawyer, that there's some, there, there's some propositions that you can't find legal support for. You can't find a case that says it because it's just so obvious that it just never needed to be said. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, prove to me that the sun rises in the morning, cite me an authority for that. And yet at some point you have to throw up your hands and just say, everyone knows this. <laughs> And that's kind of what this test is, is that if you want to say that something's a, a, a constitutional right, that there's a fundamental right to it, and yet it's not listed anywhere, you have to be able to, you should be able to show as a matter of history that everyone, there was widespread agreement that this thing, like everyone just assumed this was true. Mm -hmm. And so there, you ought to be able to say, if not directly, then indirectly, look at all the support that shows that everyone understood this to be true. And that, I think, is the the real point at which Alito has Roe and Casey. And we said that Casey didn't even look to see whether Roe was correct, but Roe itself, you know, made some half-hearted attempt to say so. And that's where Alito just obliterates it. He goes from page 15 to 30 in his opinion for the court, uh, as well as a detailed appendix that documents state laws um, prohibiting abortion at the time the 14th Amendment was even just saying, look, you can go all the way back to English history, right. you go to colonial history, early American history, history at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified. And there is just no argument that people thought that there was a, a, a legal constitutional right to abortion at the time. It's, it's just a slam dunk. Interesting thing is that the dissent agrees. They, right. they say he's right about that. They'd say it doesn't matter. But they don't contest that. And that's, this, I think, the strongest, most sort of lockdown part of his opinion. He's, and, he, and he takes a lot of time to go through, not because he's angry, but because the details matter.
And he wants to put this out there in a way that people read the opinion and say, well, I don't like the outcome, but what are you going to say about the historical survey? It just is. Right. And I think you can see his passion in that. He's like, I'm right on the history and I'll show my work. Oh, he was very detailed in that. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I really, I really liked is he just went through. I mean, common law and then laws of the, the various states of the of the country and everything else. Mm-hmm. All right, let's 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 change gears. Let's talk a little bit about stare decisis. So, um, another really important area, and in fact, an extended area of Justice mm-hmm. Alito's opinion was his discussion of stare decisis. Eric, what is stare decisis? And how did Alito counter the claim from abortion supporters that Roe and Casey should not be overturned because of it? So stare decisis is this really important principle in our legal system, which builds on precedent. And it says, leave things alone, basically. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, um, I remember when I was in law school and people would talk about the Supreme Court says, and, and, it is, and, and you have to sort of abstract away from the fact that, well, the Supreme Court is people inside of a room that make decisions. And, you know, sometimes sports castles, they'll say, you know, over the last 20 years, the Yankees have. And it's like, but it's all different people. Like, what is the thing? Uh, and, and this idea that there's a common thing across time, one of the things that helps perpetuate that is this discipline that says, for the most part, you should leave decided cases alone and decide future cases in light of them. But as Alito says, that is not an absolute command. So there are circumstances in which it's important to actually revisit issues. And he makes the case, and I think he's right, that when you're dealing with the constitution, the fundamental document that sort of structures um, government and, and, and our life together in our country, it's really important to get those decisions right because there's so many things that ripple out from there. And so that's where it's most important to say, look, sometimes you just got to go back and revisit the issue. And um, so so stereo decisis is a really important principle in our legal system. I think it's also sobering to realize that you only ever get to these factors, to this question, if the judge has already concluded that the first decision was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so if you think the first decision is right, no problem, you just move on. Um, But, you know, so some, some court decisions will say it doesn't matter whether it was right because stare decisis, they can sort of ignore that. But here, Alito goes through the historical analysis that is uh, a procedure that's set out, you know, been around for a long time in constitutional decisions to say, is there a constitutional right at issue here? And then, so we arrive at part three of the decision, which says, so now that we have concluded that case, uh, that Roe and Casey were wrongly decided, now we have this, what are we going to do about it? And so he goes through and he cites five different factors and he explains why um, he believes, uh, and it's not just him, of course, he's got other justices with him, so he's writing it, but this is the opinion of the court that says that this does not meet the test as to something that should be upheld, even though it was wrong. And that's a, a huge part of his opinion is explaining why this is such a case. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about a couple of those uh, those mm-hmm. factors. So, so he identified quote five factors to consider unquote in mm-hmm. determining whether to overrule a previous supreme Supreme Court decision. Now, each of those five were met uh, mm-hmm. in this particular case, but I'd like you to briefly comment just on three of them. And the first one is uh, the the first factor to consider, as Alito says, is quote the nature of the error. 
And Alito says this, it's on page 44 of his uh, opinion, together Roe and Casey represent an error that cannot be allowed to stand. I think we've already probably talked about this, but but again, what's the error of Roe and Casey that cannot be allowed to stand? There's a lot to be said here. I think one of the most important things is that it does violence to the Constitution. And when you establish in one case that like, look, there was no history here, and yet the Supreme Court said there's a constitutional right, that has repercussions for other instances. Right. And that creates itself a precedent that says, look, even if all history is against you, you can still just announce something. And so it has a lot of repercussions uh, beyond the abortion context. And I uh, think as uh, a lawyer and as a judge, uh, Justice Alito is saying it's really important to reestablish that this, things have to be done through a method. And if you don't get from bucket one to bucket two to bucket three, there's no constitutional right. And we need to say that because that is something that clarifies the law moving forward. Um, I think also that Roe uh, really changed the relationship between the legislature and the judiciary mm -hmm. and sort of says, we're gonna grab this enormously important, enormously consequential um, issue and we are gonna grab it as the, as the judiciary. And, and by doing so, we will preclude people from having at least, they're, they're not allowed to do anything about it. Right. So they can have debates about it, but they can't do anything because we've said this is in our house. And Justice Alito says, because it's not a constitutional right, that was wrong. That was, a, in, in a way, a kind of a theft, is that the, this, the judiciary um, took something away from the people that the Constitution said was theirs to think about and decide. And we need to give that back. Yeah. And so Can it's I not fair to say, just to sort of say like, well, you're right, I, I shouldn't have taken your car, but it's in my driveway now in stereo decisis. <laughs> so it's gonna stay there. <laughs> But it's to say, like, look, it, this was wrong, and it should be given back, and we can give it back, and we should do that now. And then also, I think relatedly, the abortion issue has done a lot of violence to our politics. It has really changed, you know, it's become this this central issue in our politics. And you know, we'll see in the years to come, in the months to come, you know, what happens now that the Supreme Court doesn't have a lock on this issue. But I think that's another reason to say, look, this has been a distorting decision. Uh, it's really distorted our politics, and uh, we ought to we ought to undo that damage to our civic life. Yeah, yeah, well stated. When you were speaking, I was uh, referring back. I just like to read. This is one of my favorite quotes of the entire opinion. It comes from page uh, forty-four, and Alito says this, and this goes to the second point that you made here, Eric. He said. Quote, Roe was on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Mm -hmm. Casey perpetuated its errors, and those errors do not concern some arcane corner of the law, uh, some arcane corner of the law of little importance to the American people. Here's the money line. Rather, wielding nothing but raw judicial power, the court usurped the power to address a question of profound moral and social importance that the Constitution unequivocally leaves for the people, unquote. Bam. I mean, that is, that is just a wonderful statement. It is. And I think it also brings to mind for me uh, something I mentioned earlier, is that the Constitution was put together by people who were suspicious of a strong federal government. Mm -hmm. You're right. And they said, okay, 
we will create a federal government, but only to do specific things. And we're going to try really hard to keep it in a box. And so it's a big deal when that federal government says, you know what, that whole thing, that's ours now. And it's fair to say, was that part of the deal? And, you know, and so that, that I think that's at the heart of what Justice Alito was saying here is that this was always supposed to be something that the people were able to debate and decide, and we ought to give it back to them. Right. Yeah, we took it away. Got to give it back. All right. Mm-hmm. So the second of uh, the factors to consider in determining whether to uh, overrule a previous course decision is the quality of the reasoning. Mm-hmm. And uh, on page 45, Justice Alito says this. He said, quote, Roe was more than just wrong. It stood on exceptionally weak grounds, unquote. Why did he make this claim, Eric? Again, I think there's a lot to say there. I think that the fundamental thing is the historical part that we've talked about. The Supreme Court has said in another context, it was a case about assisted suicide. You know, that this quote that I said about, uh, look, it has to be deeply rooted in our history and traditions. So if there's a Supreme Court right, if, if there's a fundamental right at issue here, then it's something that we ought to see as a common thread going back, to, you know, in our history. And the fact that there wasn't is just so damning. And the fact that that did not carry any weight in Roe is really just sort of stunning. And I think that's the, the most fundamental weakness with the Roe decision. And I think a beyond little, that was the thing, ahead, this aspect that uh, uh, Larry Tribe said that, you know, again, not bad as a piece of legislation, but boy, sure doesn't even try to pretend to be a Supreme Court case. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and Alito addressed that too. He talked about this is mm-hmm. this is more like legislation than it is. So, see, so he mentioned he mentioned that in his opinion too. Mm-hmm. A, a follow up on this, um, like to get your take on what Alito stated concerning viability. So, coming back to that from Roe. Uh, mm-hmm. So on page 53 of his opinion, Alito stated, quote, the viability line, which Casey termed Rose central rule, makes no sense, mm-hmm. right? What did the majority's opinions say about this uh, in terms of viability? Well, I, I think there's a lot of directions you could take that. First of all, it's not really cl- clear why that's the um, uh what it means to say that that's when sort of the different constitutional uh, rights sort of change in their importance, the balance shifts. It's also, you could also just, I think, and Alito does a good job with this too. It's hard to say what viability means because it doesn't mean a single thing. Uh, If you think about this, it's a case by case matter. It depends on the mother. It depends on the mother's age, the mother's nutrition. It depends on the baby. It depends on the skill of the doctors and nurses. It depends on the technology available and so many other factors. It changes across time. It changes from county to county. It changes from hospital to hospital. And here's the strange result, okay? The strange result, if, if viability is the determinant, is that a poor woman in a rural county with bad nutrition has greater constitutional right to an abortion than a wealthy woman. But here's the kicker, turn that around. An unborn child of a poor woman has less rights than the unborn child of a wealthy woman. And that's a really strange thing to say, that if you're gonna have something as important as uh, the state's interest in protecting a life, to say that that changes based on, well, how healthy is the mother and, and these sorts of things. And that doesn't seem at all like what our government should be doing 
is weighing those sorts of facts or determining whether the government can and should step in to save a life. Yeah. So the third of the five factors is workability. And um, got another quote from Justice Alito. This is on page 56. And he says, Mm -hmm. quote, another important consideration in deciding whether a precedent should be overruled is whether the rule it imposes is workable. That is, whether it can be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner. Eric, what does this mean from a legal perspective? So from a legal perspective, what the law is supposed to do is it's supposed to give legislatures uh, and judges and lawyers, but also individual people, notice as to how the law is going to affect them in different situations. Uh, So just to take a really simple example, when we drive down a street, we expect that occasionally we're going to be able to see a speed limit. And that speed limit is going to tell us how, like what, at what speed can you go and and feel confident that you're not going to get pulled over and get a ticket? Uh, And so if you were driving down the street and there was a sign, it just said, it depends. (laughs) You'd have a lot of frustrated people, especially if they get pulled over. Uh, you know, so <laughs> I love that. So, but you know, if there was a sign that says, um, don't go too fast, <laughs> then you're like, well, then it would depend on the cop and what, you know, how angry the cop was or how cautious the cop was. And you're like, yeah, well, that doesn't seem like a very good system. So if you have something like undue burden, um, there's other Supreme Court tests. There was one that just got thrown out in the Coach Kennedy case at the end of the term that got rid of the lemon test and this reasonable person test. And it's the same sort of thing. And it's like, well, why should, you know, one judge or, you know, in in an appellate court, it could be three or seven judges that get together and say, well, that's too far. And like, well, what does that mean? And is that going to end up being different in one part of the country versus another? And what does this really standard, what does it even really mean? And so viability is subjective, depends on so many different factors. And then undue burden is also subjective. Uh, And so it it creates just this sort of a mess. Um, And it's it's difficult. And so that's another principle that uh, Justice Alito says is something that courts should look at in deciding whether an incorrectly decided uh, case should be upheld is, does it even really work? Yeah. Does, does it create clean lines? Uh, this is especially important in business and in contracts that people need to know what the rules are going to be down the road. And it's like, geez, if this thing was wrongly decided and it doesn't even give people clear, you know, clear expectations in terms of how life is going to work, that's just another reason why we shouldn't keep it. So right. maybe if something was wrong, but it created a lot of clarity that helped people organize their lives, then that would it's something you could say in, in, in its favor. But you don't have that here. And that's his point. Right. Yeah. And he really focused a lot on the undue burden standard uh, Mm -hmm. of Casey and basically said, well, the court says this, but gave absolutely no direction as to what it means. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he give about a page and a half of very small type footnotes of appellate court cases where the judges were just, they they were stymied by this whole undue burden thing and trying to figure it out. He just said case after case after case after case after case to show the unworkability of, of that undue burden standard. Right. So that's Justice Alito saying, well, don't take my word for it. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. We don't we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess as to whether this is a workable standard. Yeah. The evidence is already in. Yeah. A gra- another another great quote. Um, I just I love picking these these quotes. Uh, page sixty two. Um, Justice Alito says Casey's undue burden standard has proved to be unworkable, as you just explained, mm-hmm. plucked from nowhere. It seems calculated to per- to perpetuate give it a try litigation before judges assigned an unwieldy and inappropriate task. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you're saying. It's the standard is set. Nobody knows what it really means, and we're just we've just been muddling with it since 1992, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So let's move on um, to maybe some more positive. I hope um, discussion here. So towards the end of his majority opinion. Justice Alito identified rational basis review as a standard on which the court will judge future state laws that restrict or ban abortion. He stated, quote, a state law regulating abortion, like any, like other health and welfare laws, is entitled to a strong presumption of validity. It must be sustained if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interests, unquote. And that's pages 77 and 78. Eric, what does this mean in English? It means that practically any life, any law restricting abortion will be upheld. Um, so and basically the rational basis test is basically like, unless it's crazy. <laughs> sort of like Roe. <laughs> but so, um, but it, 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 this is the lowest standard that a legislature has to pass. And, and so it's, you know, if, you know, basically if a judge looks at it and says, well, I don't really agree, but I see what they were getting at. I see the connection that they were trying to make here. The judge has to uphold it. So it's really only a judge that says this law doesn't make any sense. This is crazy talk. This does, it just doesn't make sense. So, which is to say that, you know, in, in any sort of law like this, uh, uh, you know, and there's a lot of nonprofits that help uh, states put together these sorts of bills and they have a lot of whereases, whereas such and such, whereas such and such. And any one of those is going to connect up and satisfy this rational basis. Is that, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, and even, even abortion uh, advocates admit that there are important state interests here. It's not like a state would be crazy to say, we'd like not to have millions of prospective citizens killed. Um, you know, to, to, to save uh, and protect the lives of innocent, vulnerable people. That's a good thing for states to do. And it's not crazy to think that um, uh, human beings ought to be cared for and protected before they're born. And so, you know, you don't have to go very far to say, yep, I could see why a state would have an interest in that. Yeah. And, and, uh, the court here in Dobbs says those are legitimate state interests, yeah. and the state you know goes on a list list of list some like any of these would satisfy, and so if you are a legislature, boy, you'd be really silly if you didn't check those boxes and sort of says this one, that one. Why not do all of them, really, and just sort of say, yeah, the Supreme Court says these are legitimate state interests, and we have them, and they have some bearing on why we're passing this law. That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned some of those legitimate state interests because I, I identified six here. We won't go through them all, but just but just to say some of them are, you know, they're kind of duh when you think about them. And one of them is the uh, the elimination of particularly gruesome or barbaric medical procedures, like a D&E, 
I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. barbaric when you rip a child apart. And, and what Alito was saying is that, or the court is saying, is that a state has a legitimate interest in protecting children from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another, another interest is the mitigation of fetal pain. We did a podcast with uh, Maureen Conduct where she talked yes. about that, that, you know, the evidence is there that, that unborn children can feel pain in utero and particularly when they're being aborted. And another one, just one last one, I, this one I really like because there's, I know there's laws out there that have been, I believe, um, turned back. Uh, but the prevention of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or disability. So mm-hmm. states that have passed laws saying, you know, you can't do abortion on the basis of sex, like you wanted a boy, but you got a girl or vice versa, or a child who's diagnosed with Down syndrome, um, mm-hmm. you know, where most of those children are aborted. It, it sounds as if the court is saying, all right, this, a state has a legitimate interest in protecting these, these children. So these laws, yeah. if they are passed, are going to be upheld. Right. So the American with Disabilities Act says it's not a good thing to treat people differently because of a disability. And there's a burden on the on on the government and the and on private businesses when they do so. Right. And yeah. and so that's already established in laws like, yeah, you shouldn't, you know, like let alone decide whether someone lives or dies on that. basis. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whether we're intentionally going to kill someone based on their disability. So. Again, you don't have to go very far to say, yeah, I could see why the state would have an interest in doing that. Yeah, it was nice to nice to see that in this in this decision. All right, um, I don't want to discuss them in detail, but I'm wondering if you have uh, anything our audience or what do you think the audience should know about three things? One is the concurrent opinions written by Justices Thomas and Kavanaugh. Anything mm-hmm. we should know about those? Oh, just really simple. Justice Thomas um, is doing what Justice Thomas does. <laughs> there have been a lot of people on the left that have said that Justice Thomas's opinion shows that the Supreme Court decision means the Supreme Court wants to and will um, overturn um, laws against interracial marriage uh, or, or Supreme Court decisions about interracial marriage or, or uh, same-sex marriage or these sorts of things. Or you know, now we're going to have laws prohibiting uh, 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 you know, all sorts of things. And um, so Justice Thomas says in his concurrence, I've been saying for a long time, and I'll say again now, I don't think there's any such thing as um, um, substantive due process, that all these decisions are wrong. And he's been on record that for saying it for a long Mm -hmm. time. So there's nothing new here. So Justice Thomas in his concurrence, first of all, he's not saying anything new. Um, Second of all, it's not joined by any other justices. And so I think that's um, perhaps something that that is an even stronger um, answer to this claim from the left that everything's now up in the air. If you didn't have Justice Thomas saying this, then you might say this is subtly in the background of the court's opinion. But you have the majority saying, no, Mm -hmm. that's not what we're saying. And you have Justice Thomas saying it and not having anyone sign on to it. So it's just Justice Thomas being Justice Thomas, and no one is signing on with him. Justice Kavanaugh, his concurrence doesn't say a whole lot. He basically says, first of all, I want to make clear and go on the record and say I'm not anti-woman. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other drum that he beats a lot is saying, look, we're just saying that the Constitution is neutral on the issue of abortion, and this is going back to the people. So those are some of the beats that he just wants to sort of hit on uh, to, again, it, it's really negative to saying I'm not all I'm saying is this is not in the Constitution, and right. I don't want to be understood as saying anything else. 
How about uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts' opinion concurring in judgment? So the, the difference here is really about constitutional method. And this is a disagreement uh, that is in other Supreme Court de uh, decisions too. It was in Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, uh, where you have this, you know, like how far should you go? And this has to do with like, what is the role of a Supreme Court in deciding cases. And there's not one answer to this. The Supreme Court, uh, all of our courts are there to decide cases and controversies. And so basically a court should do what is necessary to decide that case and then should stop. Mm -hmm. You don't want a Supreme Court that says, oh, by the way, while we're here, here's some <laughs> other things we think. There's just you know a, another whole section of the opinion that sort of says, while I've got the microphone, let me tell you what else. Right. So that right. doesn't seem right. And so, uh, but there's also this sense in which um, the Supreme Court's decisions, most importantly, the Supreme Court, should create guidance and clean rules. We talked about this as one of the sort of stereo decisis factors, but it comes in here too, is there should be some guidance going forward so that lower courts, so that legislatures, so that doctors, so that people understand what the rules are. And that's where Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts part ways. Chief Justice Roberts says, you can decide the constitutionality of the Mississippi law without taking on Roe and Casey. And therefore you must, he says. And so we talked about 6-3 versus 5-4. Mm -hmm. Chief mm -hmm. Justice Roberts does not say that Roe and Casey should be good law. What he says is you don't have to decide that here and therefore you should not have. Right. Yeah. And he has his reasons and Justice uh, Alito has his reasons. Uh, but that gets into um, broader discussions about what's the job of a Supreme Court and how yeah. should the Supreme Court approach its work. Yeah. How about uh, the dissent of Justices Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor? I think one, one of the most interesting things is how quickly they acknowledge that the majority's history is correct. So their profound differences, I think one of the most important differences is they think that it doesn't uh, decide the issue to say, what did the people who ratified the 14th Amendment think they were doing? I think they, that doesn't really matter. So this goes back to this abstract versus specific thing. They say the Supreme Court or the, the Constitution is there to sort of set out these broad abstract principles. And those principles are to be populated in each generation uh, according to the sensibilities of people. And so it's the job of the Supreme Court in some sense to distill the movements of people um, across time uh, such that it's not necessary to go back and amend the constitution. All I have to do is have a Supreme Court that put its fingers up in the air. I think the strongest arguments against that sort of approach is if you look at the early 20th century, the huge flurry of constitutional amendments, uh, including the constitutional right for women to vote. So people did not in that era go to the Supreme Court and says, this is obviously what fairness and justice requires. No. They, they understood that in order to make the Supreme Court, in order to make the Constitution say that, they needed to make the Constitution say that. And what we have in the dissent here is saying, actually, you don't. 
You just need to have lawyers and litigants petition the Supreme Court in the right way enough times, and they can populate the Constitution with the things that they believe are fundamentally important. Right. So that's one big thing. Uh, so I think, the exact, just to clarify, that's the exact opposite of originalism, which we talked about earlier. Right. So originalism says, look, um, the Constitution was put together by people that were deeply suspicious of a strong federal government. And so they, they really tried hard. They listed out, here are 17 things you were empowered to do. <laughs> and that it is wrong to simply say, well, we're going to take this one and make it you know, we're, we're just going to allow this, the federal government to do whatever it can. And, and the, the Supreme Court's part of the federal government. And so, you know, this is uh, when the Supreme Court's deciding something like this, it's doing a lot of different things. But one of the things it's definitely doing is it's saying this is what states can and can't do. So it's about women's rights, but it's also about what states can do. And for the federal government to say, I'm the big brother and you're not allowed to do these things. Why? Because I say so. Why? Because the word due process is in the 14th Amendment. And Justice Alito and the originalists say, no, that's not good enough. If the federal government's going to appropriate things, then the Supreme Court has to, the, the, the Constitution has to say so. And you got to be able to point to something specific, because that's what the rules are. And uh, the liberal justices say, look, we are... Um, We've been put here to be philosopher kings and to distill the movement of people and to put up our fingers in the air and decide where the winds of uh, enlightenment and liberty are blowing. And uh, that's our job and we're good at it. And we think that's what this means in this instance. And so it's a really different conception in terms of right. what yeah. is the Supreme Court justice and what's their job. Yep. Uh, and Beyond that, I think there's a lot of fear-mongering in the dissent, sort of saying this is a deeply destabilizing case. Um, this is not only going to destabilize the way women understand their lives, but it's also going to destabilize other areas of the law. And they go on and you know, list some of these other Supreme Court decisions. Uh, I think funniest to me is that they bring in the idea that uh, Justice Thomas and his uh, concurrence is opening the door for the Supreme Court um, to uh, reverse decisions uh, regarding interracial marriage because Justice Thomas He's, is in an interracial, interracial marriage. marriage yeah. <laughs> um, so I think there's a lot of that fear mongering. And as we talked about, I think the, the, uh, the majority opinion and Justices uh, Thomas's concurrence together address that pretty well. So that rings hollow. That's where, I, it's sad to say, but it seems to me that the dissent is teeing up uh, talking points for the left, people to get angry, more than making really a serious argument as to where they really think the Supreme Court's going to go. They know the Supreme Court's not going to do those things. Right. Let's, uh, as we bring this, start to bring this uh, interview to a close, um, Eric, as we know, with the Dobbs decision, the abortion issue goes back to the individual states. What impact do you think this will have, or maybe already is having, on your work um, as a, a religious liberty attorney? That's a really good question. Um, I have not seen work that's come up on this yet. Um, I think it's too early. Um, I think the most important change here is that um, the Dobbs case 
uh, is destabilizing. And we just have to recognize that it's changed, it's changed things in important ways. And so for, uh, for doctors, for, for hospitals to try to say like, well, what does this mean? And uh, what do things look like for me now? Um, there are states that have responded to uh, Dobbs in very different ways. Some state laws that were dormant uh, for a long time that were sort of pro-life laws that were passed, but it, no one really even tried to put them into effect. All of a sudden they popped into effect. And um, there's other uh, strongly pro-choice, pro-abortion legislatures like uh, in Colorado where I live have passed laws that are yeah. way stronger than, yep. than what Roe was. Uh, and so that's part of the destabilization is uh, and the confusion that has been out there uh, about um, the way laws against abortion affect the way that OBGYNs care for women in other settings to, to have ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages. There's a lot of confusion around that. And so I think that's where I've seen uh, the biggest need for, for clarity uh, from, from lawyers and from judges is to, and some of this is just gonna be time, but for things to settle down and for people to wrap their minds around this and sort of say, no, 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 you can still go ahead just fine. Catholic hospitals take care of ectopic pregnancies. Catholic hospitals help women um, with miscarriages. And yes, DNC procedures are part of caring for women with miscarriages. Uh, and just because you had a DNC does not mean you had an abortion. It, it's incredible to me that people have uh, been saying that and have been beating that drum. Uh, you know, it's almost three months now after the, uh, or two months, I guess, rather after the Dobbs decision. And there's still people out there on social media and, and, and a commentary saying these same things over and over again. And I think that, that, uh, that lack of confidence about what the law means and what uh, doctors and nurses can do, what employers can do um, is, is the biggest sort of uh, thing that needs to be addressed at this time. Yeah. And those questions about um, providing medical interventions to, for, mm -hmm. for pregnancy complications is an issue That's that we have the NCBC. That's at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, we're, we're dealing with that as well and probably will be for at least the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. Eric Niffen, what, what, what uh, final words of wisdom do you have for us today? Well, this isn't legal. I, I think an incredible uh, lesson uh, out of the Dobbs case is just about persistence in prayer and public advocacy. I'm reminded of uh, in Luke 18, uh, Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow. Um, a lot of people said that the pro-life cause was hopeless. And, you know, looked at people as like tilting at windmills. This is not going to change. And you can get together your prayer group and you can do this. But, you know, the idea that this is ever going to change, it's just a pipe dream. And it happened. And that was really touching to me is um, after Dobbs to hear stories about people who've been part of the pro-life movement, you know, the whole time, you know, for 50 years, people who were remembering giants of the pro-life movement um, who like Moses did not get to make it to the promised land, uh, but who laid the groundwork. And just to reflect on that, and that's something I've been praying about is like, what are the things that I think are just hopeless? And am I not giving uh, God enough credit, um, that nothing is hopeless. And the fact that there were people who strategized to win hearts and minds, to make the legal arguments um, that all led to this, uh, it's really an incredible testament to so many people that 
we're able to see the long game and we're able to to really uh, stay in and be patient and to work hard. Um, and uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. And so that, that I think is a lesson for all of us. Eric Niffen, thank you for joining me today on Bioethics On Air. It's been a pleasure. Good to talk with you, Joe. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website, please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website again, ncbcenter.org and click on the red donate button. Thank you for listening and may God's peace be with you.